Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. This is Dmitry Samarov from Chicago, Illinois, and I love listening to Vishkana's creative control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend, and the way things are going, couldn't you use a new friend? Listen now. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Meg Baird is a talented multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and singer based in the state of California. Originally from New Jersey, Baird co-founded the Philadelphia band Espers, was the drummer in Watery Love, and also had a key role in Hair on Oblivion, in which he played drums, wrote poetry, and sang. Beyond collaborating with the likes of Mary Lattimore, Steve Gunn, Sharon Van Etten, and Will Oldham, among many others, Baird has also tended to an expression of her own, releasing four solo albums since 2007. The latest is a beautiful and beguiling one called Furling, which arrives on January 27th, 2023, via Drag City Records. Meg and I connected recently to have a discussion about the road from New Jersey to Philadelphia, the enduring significance of radio, her interest in classical music as a child, and the piano and cello lessons she stopped taking so she could play sports, her father's classical guitar, and her sister, Laura Baird, who is also a musician, loving Neil Young and getting into the drums, closely collaborating with her partner, Charlie Softly, the sound and substance of Furling, 
a pandemic tour, upcoming shows, other future plans, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control, which is the primary source of revenue for all the work that goes into this show every week. Thanks again for supporting the show at Patreon. Plus, in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is episode 748 of Creative Control, featuring the talented and kind Meg Baird with your host, me, Vishkana. Hi, Meg. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Uh, where in the world are you today? I am in Eureka, California, up on the north coast. Eureka. That's a lovely idea for a name, I might say, <laughs> if I might say. Like, yeah. you know, Eureka. Eureka moment. That's what I think of. Is there some, do you know the origin story of the name? Um, you know, I actually don't know historically why it's associated with this specific place. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it may have some of the more unfortunate kind of gold rush settler oh, uh, right. histories tied to it, but you know we can think a little <laughs> lo- like longer view history and yeah. uh, think of think more in those terms. It's it's more positive. <laughs> I'd like to think of it as a place where great ideas were discovered. That's yeah. what I uh, that's what I will think. And uh, no, that's great. Right. How long have you have How long have you been in Eureka, California? About two years, kind of a, a slow move from the bay up to here. Yeah, so. I, I believe you spent some time in Philadelphia. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from New Jersey in the Philadelphia area. So Philadelphia was moving to the you know moving to the close big city um, when I moved there. So, so, that, I had so this- I'm not technically from. You know, I didn't grow up in the city of Philadelphia, but that's my region, you know. Yeah, I got a little confused by this when I had... Uh, are you familiar with a fellow named Bill Nace? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very little, much. Yeah, he label mate. And he... I got a little confused because he told me, and I'm going to get this wrong. I think he's from Jersey, but also spent a lot of time in Philadelphia. So is it fair to say... And I think he said more so than even like New York uh, initially when he was like a young uh, concert going right. kid. So the mm-hmm. the journey from some part of, and I think of New Jersey as a state. We're talking about the state of New Jersey, not some city somehow has the same name. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so New Jersey and Philadelphia, pretty close together is what I'm gathering. I've been to both places, but I can't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're pretty, yeah. pretty, pretty close. You're almost similar in feeling and, and the way people... Uh, Act, I guess. <laughs> yes, it's um, it's between. There's rivers. There's just like river crossings between New York and Philadelphia, both, and yeah. it's what's in between. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think, again, I don't know why I keep bringing up colonial history somehow, and <laughs> but uh, because it is older, I think the regions are more compressed. You know, because things change pretty quickly in a small span. It's like so. The there's like the New York Metro and the Philly Metro. Are, geographically rather close yeah and of course they're very similar but i guess they're slightly different yeah i think linguists linguists like the area for some reason because there's 
like a bizarrely giant amount of tiny regional accents that change in a small amount of oh. ge- geography. <laughs> really? <laughs> Something I... like that. Just just weird stuff. Weird disappearing history. I don't know. <laughs> right. We that's but, that's true. Those of us who observe uh, America have, have come to know this. There can be a New York mm-hmm. accent, a New Jersey accent, you're saying, and a, and a Pennsylvania kind of accent. Or yeah. Although I, I gather a Philly tone or or the sound of a voice from Philly might be different than another part of Pennsylvania as well. Uh, just regional yeah. dialect almost. I'm using the wrong terms. Yeah. I'm not a linguist, clearly. I'm not either. And then there's and then there's the one that you know that Philly boy Roy uses. That one, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's the the Philly boy freakishly Roy. Yeah. Uh, uh, accurate. <laughs> but anyway, but Bill is correct. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. Bill is actually he grew up in the town close, very close to the town where I grew up. Huh. And you know, it make it's not hard. To, you know, the distance between Philadelphia and New York is. Actually, it's actually pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, that's what I got from him. And like I say, I got a little geographically confused uh, in that chat, but it, it makes sense to me now. Uh, what was it like growing up there in terms of being uh, someone who was immersed in music and arts and culture? Uh, did you feel enriched? Did you need to go to other places to get that stuff when you could uh, come of age? What was it kind of like to grow up there? I mean, it was it was fine. You know, it wasn't. Uh, anything to wring your hands over. But I think I've got all of that more from myself, from hanging out with my sister, going, you know, into Philadelphia at that point. My parents used to take us to see the orchestra oh. in Philadelphia. Oh, nice. So that was a big deal. And if I wanted to participate in classical music, which I kind of fell out of pretty early, but uh, I, I used to have to go up to Princeton which is about a f- almost an hour drive. My poor mom didn't drive me <laughs> around to do that. But yeah, that was okay. And then I I think uh, radio was probably a big help. You know, just radio at the lower end of the dial, kind of just learning to, to listen to radio to um, augment, you know, what was, what was going on. Stations like, um, stations, just, uh, if I may guess, stations like WFMU perhaps? Uh, I wasn't in their airwaves. Oh, oh, uh, I see. Sorry, I I got the Philadelphia WRTI okay. from Temple. Um, that was a big one, and um, WXPN. They you know had kind of some of this folk, you know, more of the folk shows and what was called at that time, you know, world music. That was you know that that kind of moment yeah. in music history. Right. <laughs> that they were that was a big part of their format. And then Princeton WPRB, I would, I could, you know, I think they boosted their signal at some point in my high school years, and that was big. Got that signal, and that was that was a big help too. Vocationally, I've been immersed in radio for most of this century, if I might say, since uh, two thousand five or six. I've and to this day, I I work in radio, and uh, it's always been very huge for me. But I wonder how it. I sometimes wonder about it standing in this current time frame where people are anything they want is at their fingertips, anything on demand. uh, They can curate their own listening uh, habits or they can 
fall prey to algorithmic uh, music creation as well. I, I think um, I only asked this because you brought it up, but is radio still something that is important to you in your practice or as a fan of music? It's probably with the things you just mentioned, it just becomes even more hmm. of a part of a practice and something I crave more and more and more. I mean, I, I interact with it more. The online radio has, you know, like that, that's a huge help. So I guess that's kind of part of the, not kind of a hybrid of both, <laughs> but that I love that. I use it to even kind of, especially during, you know, the last three years, I even used it as a way to kind of travel. Hmm. I would listen to the newscasts where my mom and sister were so I could, you know, hear about the Conshohocken curve and just like whatever their weather was. <laughs> and other radio stations would just make like the places that I like to be. I listen to Kaser a lot from L.A. It makes you feel like you're, you know, having a really good day driving around. Well, not not a traffic day driving around, but having like a nice time um, down there. I don't know. It just... It's kind of something I started to do. And then, of course, you know, WFMU is a, a treasure at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so that made me feel more connected, too. I started listening to it live more, you know, like getting excited, like, oh, it's time to, to tune in, even though it's on streaming and it's archived. It's still kind of exciting to uh, tune in live. Um, I listen to uh, Ira's show a lot um, in that way. That's it. That's an interesting point that you raised that, uh, radio seems to have been custom made for internet life. You don't have to rely on, you were talking about the range you had, uh, the WFMU was out of your radio range, uh, when you were younger, but now conceivably anyone around the world could listen to regional radio from wherever they are because of the internet. So it's, it does seem adaptable. Um, so you're talking about, it's important for you to kind of learn about what's going on in a specific region. The music creation, like the, the, the host, the importance of the host. It's interesting. So these podcasts that you're on right now and we make, to me, have always been an extension of radio, but there's fewer rules and parameters and that's good. But I, I, when people are like, ah, I like radio. I don't like podcasts. I'm like, well, podcasts are kind of part of radio. Like it's just an extension of it. It seems like radio is kind of leading the way and it's going to be like the cockroach. It's just always going to, I feel like, it's always going to be here in some capacity, but I do find that people struggle with the, myself included, like, um, the music curation part can be huge, hugely important if that's how you listen to music. If you are someone who relies on people, um, curating your listening habits, but I'm also someone who used to go to record stores and I don't go as much as I used to and discover things myself. And occasionally I get a lot of music sent my way. But for you, uh, do you find you get a lot of music discovery and and the fact that a host is engaging with you on it, does that help you as a listener and as a musician yourself? I feel like it does. I I definitely get a few discoveries that way. Um, And it gets you, it's a way to be a little bit out of your own head and respond to someone else's excitement. For whatever reason, I, I used to spend more time where there was just a community of people like constantly, you know, just hanging out socially. Records were a big part of that yeah. or just music listening. I'm not over fetishizing has to be the record thing, but there's something about that process and like socially of being around and doing that. 
And that hasn't really been a huge part of my life for a while. So I feel like radio kind of keeps that more social connection to excitement about songs and just that feeling that, you know, you've missed something. (laughs) Someone's going to explain, like show you, like reveal this, I don't know, the the feeling that you're going to really be surprised by something. And also just kind of attenuating to someone else's sort of code of their, their sort of deep code about the things that they like. I don't know. It's, it's a bit, that's, that's something that I find really helpful to stay engaged with. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's really heartening to hear that perspective from you because I think I also worry that the, an independent artist like yourself used to particularly benefit from campus and community radio, college radio. Um, Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that has diminished now because as an artist, I don't know if that's, I guess what I'm asking is like, do you feel like it's as important for you and your own art to get kind of get the word out to get the promotion? Like, is that still a haven for you as an artist to campus community radio, college radio? It could be. I mean, I like the concert calendar. I think the concert calendar is, is still just like flyers up somewhere. I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at how much I am, I still find out about things from yeah. flyers and concert yeah. calendars. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more direct and it, it like there's no riffraff. It's like it's very to the point. <laughs> yeah. We in Canada um, we have a thing where all the alt weekly newspapers seem to be they're either folding or gone completely. Uh is that the case in America? Like uh, the concert calendar you're talking about, we used to pick up the alt weekly and depending on whatever was going on, like you'd read the articles, but you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. It was those those promotional ads for like, here's what's coming up or the concert listings that the magazines themselves uh, put together. They were a huge thing. But do you, are there alt weeklies still uh, prevalent in America? Yeah, they're, they're still around. I think it's thinner and thinner and I'm sure they're folding as well. But, yeah. you know, they're, I can't say that they're gone, but they're not, they're not thriving, but they're, there's still some of them that are hanging in there, hmm. you know, yeah. just, you know, it's depressing. Just, you know, we know, all know where all the ad revenue goes that could be supporting yeah. this, but it's supporting. Yeah. Blah, blah. Well, they always, I, I <laughs> um, as an artist myself, I always thought they benefited the independent artists the most, right? Like those kind. it was sort of like vaguely free advertising. Uh, yeah. I mean, someone was paying for it, but it didn't, at least you stood a chance of being side by side with the, REM arena at like they're playing an arena in your town, but also there's this whole thing of like all the smaller stuff. Anyway, that's where I, this was a tangent. I didn't expect us to go on. Sorry. I know this isn't your field of expertise, but I figure experientially you must uh, have some thoughts on this being uh, an independent artist and, and trying to make your way in this complicated landscape. That's all. That's all I was getting at. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I feel like it's, you know, we're kind of up against some of the same forces and doing our best to, I don't know, just to keep putting good things out there in the public sphere yeah. against, you know, and not trying to be too, I mean, we can't change like what's, what's happened, but yeah. I don't know. I just feel like I mean, it's, it's tricky because, you know, journalists and artists, like you have, you kind of still stay in your separate lanes. We can't be, because <laughs> You know, that's like kind of an old agreement, but I just feel like that journalists have, have been through a lot of the same pains that musicians and have been through. 
So it's, I just feel a lot of, uh, there's just a lot of understanding of <laughs> and sympathy you know, for it. Yeah, I would hope that the more self-aware journalists writing these pieces are talking about the fact that artists are in distress uh, vocationally and all that that entails, you know, mentally, uh, physically, the, the physical health and mental health, the toll that we're hearing more and more about uh, from musicians who are speaking out about these things. I would hope self-aware journalists would be like, wait a minute, that's our bread and butter too. If these folks aren't yeah, making music, like that's... Because I, I, I run into this sometimes where I'm like, yeah, this whole, you know, I, I tend to focus on independent, if I can speak personally, like I tend to focus on independent culture. And every once in a while, I'd be like, man, my Patreon is so modest for this show. And my reach is somewhat like I do fine. It's doing well. It's 10. This is the 10th year of doing this for on this show for me. So something about it is resonating and it's it's fulfilling for me. But I do notice how many musicians and artists and writers uh people in the publishing like in the you know in in the literature realm are like this is not sustainable for me and and it, it only i feel like some of my colleagues are only starting to realize that is bad news for us uh, the people covering <laughs> these artists cuz i i know it sounds simplistic and obvious but i don't think that has really dawned on us the chain reaction of uh, folks like you, uh, not you specifically, but folks saying, have you looked at the streaming royalties? Like we used to put out a record and you'd get paid for that work and you you get paid for each time someone bought the record a little bit and the label would get some money and oh, everyone would get some money, but we would get some money and uh, licensing placements, all these things, like all of it is diminishing. And all I'm getting at is I appreciate your empathy towards people like me, I just hope it's uh, reciprocated because I don't know if it is sometimes. I see a lot of coverage about these issues, but I don't know if... Anyway, yeah, it's it's just, it's like I said, I was talking about the alt-weeklies folding. I don't think it's a coincidence that's just at the same time as people in who make music and art were saying, yeah, I can't do this anymore. Um, I don't want to get too bleak, but have you had these thoughts ever? Like, I... Why, what am I doing? I, I can't do this. Like, this is not sustainable. Do you ever think about these things? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm probably in a position where I've been thinking about that the entire time. <laughs> 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 I don't think I've been. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but that's, uh, but yes, it, it does. It does feel a little, I don't know. I, I, there, I'm not going to, I've never stopped making music. You just have to maybe think about how you're allotting your your energy and you know how you're sustaining yourself and being staying healthy. But um, yeah, stopping making music or stop not recording music even that doesn't seem like an option ever. No, but I but I think that like I do think that the uh, people making the most money are relying on our compulsions. To keep doing it. Cause I've heard that too. It doesn't matter. Like purists will say it doesn't matter. Musicians are always going to make music, whether there's venues, whether there's labels, like that's just the way music is. And if again, if I put it on the way this podcast structure has worked, this episode will go out, Meg, and it'll be on Apple and Stitcher and all the companies, none of whom pay us producers. For that work, we're just handing them <laughs> c- 
content for their channels the same way now that musicians are like, you know, often you'll see these like uh, uh, link tree type things where like buy my record, hear my record on all the streaming services here, but they're not giving you and us any money for it. And they are, I think, aware of the fact that we just want to make things and contribute to cultural growth and community. And that's where it gets a little nefarious. You know what I'm saying? Well, they're not, they're not music people. Yeah. They're, they're making a technology. Yes. They're technological people. They're not, um, (laughs) they're not, (laughs) it's, it's, it is, it sounds very obvious, but it, it, it actually is a, it's, it's a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in any case, you said before we get to talking specifically about Furling, which is a beautiful record. uh, Thank you so much for making it. Against all odds, apparently, given my bleak uh, uh, entry point into it. No, it's a wonderful record. Um, But you did say a couple of things there about your upbringing that I wanted to ask about. You suggested your parents took you to see uh, orchestras, I believe is what you said, classical Mm -hmm. music. And then you made an allusion to the fact that you initially had a foray into classical music, but you got out of it. Can you talk a little bit about how old you were? What what did you end up exploring for a, even a brief period at the time? Well, I took, I mean, I took piano lessons just in the typical, you know, that a person does who's musical, I don't, you know, musical family. Oh, I you, took piano you, lessons. Oh, because you, did your parents play as well? Oh, my my father, his his main instrument is uh, was trombone. Hmm. So, but he was, you know, he he liked music. We had a piano in the house. My sister played piano. My older sister Laura. Uh, so I took piano lessons as well, and I really liked it. I wasn't a good student. I mean, that was usually that's the hiccup. It's uh, I was, you know, pretty musical, musical enough, but I was not a good student. Not the kind of student that you need to be to go into the classical avenue. That and that became apparent. Pretty early. (laughs) Is that simply that you um, didn't practice as much as you should have? Like, I go through this with my son all the time. They don't want to do the... Yeah. I I had to make it on a... We have a shared calendar. So every day at 4.30, they're supposed to go and practice for at least half an hour. And sometimes I go down Mm -hmm. there and they're just looking at their phone or their iPod, uh, whatever it is. And uh, is it the practicing part that you found difficult as a child? Yeah, I wasn't that inspired to practice i mean like and i would go to every piano lesson feeling guilty yes i mean i wanted to i mean i enjoyed i loved the instrument i loved playing music it just you know some kids are just you have to keep them from stop like they want to practice five hours a day it's it's just a different kind of alignment reading music wasn't really my thing i think i just like to kind of mess around a little bit more and i thought the pieces were beautiful and I loved playing them, but I wasn't as, I didn't have that kind of mindset that like a serious classical musician has where I, it's just a different relationship yeah. with music that I don't have. And I was not able to cultivate it either, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm really, it has a huge effect on what I do. I just, I never really took that, took that course, um, even though it was, it was available to me, but I didn't, I didn't take advantage of <laughs> <laughs> of so, it. so so how long how long were you sort of engaged in that uh, the lessons and I think I st- I stopped piano around 15 
because my I started playing some sports and I just was not practicing enough. It just felt like I was wasting everyone's time and money. Yeah. Uh, that I just, you know, uh, but I, you know, I, I got pretty far, and I also played cello. I started oh. playing cello late because that is one instrument that you don't need to start playing at a really young age. So I thought maybe that would work. I thought maybe maybe piano is just not my instrument. If I play cello, I could kind of kind of jump in at an older age. And I love the instrument. Beautiful. Same thing. I just like to kind of play tones and play around on it and kind of mess around. But I didn't have that kind of discipline and you know classical mindset. Um, yeah. So I, I joined a youth orchestra. Huh. That's the youth orchestra in Princeton. I, I did. Okay, it was I'm very good at memorizing, very bad at reading music and I played for a season or two there, but same thing. It just I didn't it seemed like I wasn't uh dedicated enough to more and all the driving and the lessons and you know, yeah. that was but you know, again, it was great experience, but it didn't lead to playing classical cello. <laughs> So you, you, when you take up the cello, sorry, so you stopped piano at 15. I don't remember when you, if you said when you started it. How long were you playing the piano there? I started at five. Good Lord. So you're paying you're 10 years of piano. 10 years, yeah. That is a long time to stick with it before feeling like you're sick of it. That's that's pretty incredible yeah. in itself. I wasn't sick of it. It's just I didn't have time. You know, I was starting to get kind of busy, and I was going to maybe just try this cello thing out and sports. Cello and sports, the classic combination. <laughs> <laughs> what what sports were you into, by the way? Oh gosh, that's so boring. But I played, no, it's not. I don't think I it is. Field hockey. I played field hockey, and I played on the the men's tennis team. The men's because tennis they, team. We didn't have a uh, women's oh. team. That's a travesty that was, in itself. I don't like that. But uh, that was uh, that was. We were the very we were the very worst teams and team in the league. So quite sophisticated, though. Those are sophisticated <laughs> sports, if I might say, and uh, and instruments to play. Yeah, I mean, taking up the cello—that's not a lark. You have to you have to own like a cube van to get that thing around. I'm guessing uh, to get to practice and whatnot. No, it's it's, it's pretty easy. Pretty Is it? light. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> right. It fits in the back seat. <laughs> so so, but all I was getting at in terms of duration—that is a solid foundation. You weren't just in and out after a year or two. You've got yeah. all the building blocks of music in ten years for sure. I'm guessing. Uh, yes. And so, and so, your it, it doesn't sound like it was lack of interest. It sounds like it was a bit of guilt that yes, you were like, like ten I, years of of under of guilt. Yeah. And that's, underachieving. That's, that's a lot. That's a lot to <laughs> overcome. So then you get into sports in your teens. Did you abandon after the cello? Let's call it the cello fiasco. I'm just going to make it more sensational than it was. Uh, after the cello thing, a couple of seasons, I think you said, uh, do you, you cold turkey on music in terms of playing and then just focusing on sports in high school? Or what was your... No. No? I was just surviving high school. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't even call it focusing on sport. I don't know. You're just kind yeah. of bumbling through trying to do stuff. Was it? Do you think um, it was? But social? then I, yeah, then it, then guitar. I think then, then guitar. Oh, okay. sorry. Go ahead. I'm oh, no, no, speaking it, over you. No, you're not. It's fine. I'm also was speaking over you. All I was going to ask was, do you think it was social? Like, uh, you know, on some level, because uh, I navigated this world too. I was really into sports, but really into music. And then in high school, I decided I didn't really like the sports people as much as I like the weirdo music and 
art, arts people. So I gravitated mm-hmm. towards them at some point. Incidentally, I'm a much better basketball player in my 40s than I ever was in high school now. I play with my son. I'm like, why am I hitting these shots? It doesn't make any sense. I got, I got range. Uh, anyway, I that think I, be... <laughs> I'm, I'd love to shoot some hoops right now. It's been a long time. We should, the next time we're together, yeah. the first time we're ever together, we should okay. play a round of one on one. I long had a fantasy of trying to do a, like a web video series where I just played one on one with musicians. I thought that would be a cool angle or like 21, just something where you could ask, you could do questions and you're not too winded. Do you have 21 in America? You do, right? It's the foul, the free throw <laughs> shooting. Yeah. I'm really bad at it. Um, I used to try and learn. Um, I had a friend. He was really trying to teach me. It was fun. Yeah. But, and I, I remember even getting, I got like really shit talked by some like little kids. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what am I doing? It's terrible. Uh, it, it's a weird. Like, what am I doing here? It's very. It was cute. I was not. It was. It was very charming. But yeah, I'm like. I'm not. I'm better at defense. Okay, it's good to know. I already know your. I already know how to take you on now. If we ever get together, my point was though. Uh, in high school, you start to get that. Uh, the, the cliques start to form. I, I would say like the jocks and the musicians in my upbringing in the nineties, definite distinctions there, some crossover, but some, some distinctions there. Maybe I'm uh, romanticizing the delineation a bit too much. It wasn't that smooth because I felt like I was in both realms, but do you think giving up music and getting into sports and getting your way through high school, was there any social pressure to try and not really no i don't think i changed that much the the sports was just nice because it was just something that kind of worked i wasn't that social for me yeah okay Uh, but it was it was just it was fun and i think the school that i went to just it didn't really have that kind of classic the music people and this i don't it was uh i was just kind of in my own little world i think right there wasn't I had friends and plenty of nice experiences, but it wasn't until I went to college that I found music people, you know, that yeah, kind okay. of. Yeah, okay. I, I didn't have that in, in, my, where, in my town where I grew up. You didn't attend the Breakfast Club High School? No, I didn't attend the Breakfast Club <laughs> High School, exactly. Okay, so, got it. That's fair enough. So, guitar- different, different demographic. <laughs> different demographic. Yeah. So, uh, uh, guitar, you say. What? Uh, when are you prompted to try uh, the guitar uh, in the midst of all of this uh, chronology that we're describing? My father had a classical guitar, uh, so it was around, and I just that was just more DIY, teach yourself. And of course, that's the instrument that I, after all the lessons and this and that, it's the one that was just hanging on the wall that I could just kind of pick up and mess around with. Oh, okay. That, okay. That I went for. <laughs> was there any, so, any, um, we, we, in all of this, like you mentioned going to the orchestra with your parents there, and I assume that had some bearing on you taking a piano and, and cello, probably. Were there artists or experiences you had that made you want to uh, explore the guitar, to take it off the wall, if you will? I think it's probably just like my father's listening, you know, the music that he played. There was a fair bit of bossa nova and classical guitar. It was a classical guitar that we had. So, And he wasn't 
a super, you know, he was self-taught as well. That wasn't his main instrument, but he was like a chord guy. Right. You know, just liked those chords and he kind of taught me that. I didn't really learn. He, he just taught me some basics just to get started. But, you know, I just taught myself a little bit. I never got too advanced in anything. Didn't have, didn't read tab, didn't kind of go in that direction, but just stuck with playing by ear. But yeah, it was just having that classical guitar around. I probably started playing it later in high school. I don't think there was just this feeling that my, if I, if I started playing guitar too young, that my hands would be too small or oh. I'd hurt my hands or something like that. I don't know. It's, I don't know what was, what that was, but. Isn't um, piano harder on your yeah. hands than guitar? I, whenever I try to play my son's piano, I'm like, I can't. My fingers get all. I play guitar a little bit, but I and that doesn't bother me. But piano, I find difficult uh, to get my hands. Are... Yeah, there's a lot of technique and yeah, strength yeah. in there, which I never. Uh, yet another thing <laughs> with the guilt. I never, <laughs> never got there okay. <laughs> with the proper technique or the strengthening exercises. Didn't do any of I that. See. Okay, so it doesn't sound like it was any particular artist that prompted you to. Um, uh, take on the music that you're now uh, known for. When did you start to ponder the notion of uh, ponder and actually, uh, I, I guess, begin executing um, songwriting, composition, and potentially singing, singing out in public? Even do you remember what prompted that? Uh, that happened pretty naturally, just because my sister was also playing music. My older sister, Laura. So I didn't really have to think about it. It was just what she was playing. I I wanted to learn some Neil Young songs. They sounded like they were not too hard. And to, I mean, just to the chords. Like I was like, I could hear that there wasn't going to be. A, uh, and then she was playing, uh, you know, in bands a little bit. And she got a, she was really early in like the Tascam, the Tascam four track universe. Really DIY, um, so, some DIY stuff going on. Okay. Yeah. So that, she had the task cam and I was still in high school when the task cam showed up. So that just, I don't know, it, it wasn't like a, this big decision or searching. It was just what was fun to do and what was there. Uh, I mean, we would play like weird open mics in the greater Princeton area. Yeah. <laughs> so that's about it. <laughs> but it wasn't... Uh, yeah, it, it, I I can't say that there was. It just was natural. Na- natural for you. So at some point, though, we, we've hit upon like I think by this point, those listening will appreciate that uh, Meg, you're a multi instrumentalist, but we haven't even got through all the instruments you're sort of known for. Um, drums are also a key uh, instrument for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, with uh, very little <laughs> technique. And- <laughs> I guess that's another theme. Yeah, drums. It was a bit random, but just came about kind of socially again. Ah. Uh, My friends, Richie and Max, were, you know, that they kind of had this vision of having like really pounding, simplistic drums, minimal drums, and asked if I wanted to try it out. So I, I started playing with them with Watery Love. Uh, I had played around, I, you know, I'd just been around bands so long that, you know, I'd learned separation and such, but I never really studied. But that seemed kind of what they were hoping for was, you know, a, 
somebody that didn't have that sound of like, oh, I've been practicing five hours a day, you know, yeah, for the last little scrappy 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, some of these instruments, I was making the joke about the cube van and the cello, which was, apparently was not a very good joke. It was a, it was a bad joke. And I apologize. Uh, it's not, it doesn't sound like it's as cumbersome as I thought. Drums, though, as a drummer myself and someone who obtained drums in my teen years and had to lie to my parents because they didn't like music. And I, uh, when I brought them home, uh, I told them they were someone else's. <laughs> I just borrowed those from Ted and they're like, okay. Anyway, uh, drums are a commitment. Uh, a lot of stuff to move around there. Uh, so you can't just willy-nilly play the drums. You have to commit to it on some level. A lot of parts, big pieces. Uh, so you obtain a drum kit, bring it home, that kind of thing, or no, you're at practice spaces? I just use other people's drums. Other people's drums. So what, though, prompts you to be – just that someone asked you? Or, or did yeah. you have a – that's it. You're like, I guess I'll try to play the drums, and you figured it out? Yes. <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing that's, but you that's all it was <laughs> <laughs> okay but you that it was was that a primary instrument for you for some period when heron oblivion was really active that was you know doing the the drums and voice so yeah i guess that became a primary instrument okay for a while i i miss playing them but yeah i don't miss the gear problems but yeah <laughs> it's a bit of a pain yeah <laughs> All my bandmates uh, were relieved when I finally bought cases for the drums because they would help me carry the cold drums in the winter. And they'd be like, this sucks, all the gear. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I should get a bag for all the stuff and then cases. And they're like, this is much better. Thanks for doing that. I'm like, yeah, sorry, I didn't know any better. They are a bit cumbersome. Um, you mentioned a couple of the bands you played in. Uh, are there any others you want to cite uh, before we get to you becoming yourself <laughs> and starting to do things on your own? <laughs> See other bands. I think I, I I was playing in a couple bands out of my college times that sort of traveled over to Philadelphia, and then I also played in a band called Clock Strikes Thirteen for a little bit. There was a rotating cast of like extra musicians in that band. Then from that band, I met Brooke Seitensons, and then Esper started. So right, if I'm that's a, a little bit of a loose thread, but I think I always had like some kind of thing going in addition to starting playing music with my sister, like from way back. So, okay. which has been a constant the whole time. So you've been a collaborator and in, in what we've described thus far, you've mostly been a collaborator. You've worked with others. When did uh, lyric writing, poetry, if you will, when did that sort of expression start to enter your, your realm as, as a creative person? Uh, Probably in in college, you know, like play music with my sister, the the kind of the task cam, <laughs> you know, home recording era. And that would, and yeah, I don't think it was. Again, it's just if I was singing, I needed to to kind of fill that out with lyrics. So that was kind of how it happened. Okay, it sounds like your yeah. sister was a real lodestar for you. Like she's the one who. Oh my! Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that, so now we get to, to you. And I appreciate you indulging in this very reflective line of questioning because it seems to me, from what I can gather from Furling, it's a pretty reflective record. Um, does, that, does, it, does that resonate with you? Does it feel that way for you? Yes. I, and by reflective, you mean like just person, like kind of personally reflecting on like 
like like milestoney or <laughs> kind of I, I'm not sure. Yeah, just, I guess I mean <laughs> sort of pondering uh, parts of your life, uh, potentially not uh, necessarily something that's uh, more. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe pondering your past a little bit more. Is that is that accurate? I'd say I'd say that's definitely in there, but it I don't know that it's that I had a that much of an autobiographical bent, you know, to it when I when I was writing those pieces. Uh, but I'm sure that that's a, you know, that's part of any any record. Um it also it always winds up sort of being a literally a record of a period of time from that that you wrote it and everything like that. It always kind of winds up being in there. Yeah, I, I usually see that after the fact more than when I'm actually writing it. It's not really an intention, but it gets it gets stuck in there along with all these other things that you're that you're doing and and conjuring up when you're working on the songs. Well, you invoked Neil Young a couple of times, and as a, a student and fan of Neil Young, I do hear uh, some sonic allusions to certainly his sort of mid-70s period, uh, uh, at least. So I guess I wonder in, and I don't know if that resonates with you or if you were consciously making allusions to that stuff, but it's like a vibe. It's like a feeling. So yeah. I guess that's where I'm coming from. Like, Do you suppose as objectively as you can, do you suppose you were kind of drawing upon those early influences in, in conjuring the songs uh, for this record? I'm sure in some of them, uh, some of them was probably very intentional, maybe even just more into the same place, like those, those places where he lived in Northern California that I also have a deep affection for. Yeah. And how he's such a massive artistic force in that area that it's just like, his songs almost kind of soundtrack the space. Yeah. In that way, uh, they're hard to separate. You know, he just really had had that ability or maybe it's just something that happens after the fact. But whatever that is, it's it's definitely a real force. <laughs> uh and I also I really respect the way his his he uses chord voicings. They're relatively simple. They're not, you know, it's not like crazy jazz chords. It's not like, you know, you have somebody like Joni Mitchell just being a complete genius and there's like 50,000 passing chords and you're like one minute in the song. <laughs> and that's like amazing. But his his are, they're not like a little more simple sounding, but he's so, you can just hear that awareness of these voicings. Yeah. And they almost become, I, I just don't know how he could make these simple you know really chords that are just out there and they he they become his like signature for him because he played them in, with so much um i don't know there's just like how do you make a chord like your signature like a basic chord <laughs> it becomes your just the way he voices things so that's probably something i that was kind of something in the back of my mind was like chord voicing in that way that you know, again, it wasn't like this huge artistic statement, but it was something I was thinking about a lot. Um, maybe, you know, going back to the 10 years of guilt, of not really being a very <laughs> studious person, but liking to play these instruments and and kind of getting that out of them. Yeah, well, I mean, you're describing something that I appreciate about uh, Neil, and I think it's uh, reflective in your music as well, is, is, is trying to present a feeling as opposed to a technically 
you know, superior uh, expression, if you will. Like I, you have, it seems to me that given how much training you undertook, whether you were in fully engaged or not, you have the foundation probably more than most to be a Joni Mitchell, to play complicated things. Um, and I'm not suggesting they're simple, but you do seem to have made a conscious effort to put forth a vibe, a feeling uh, with relative accessibility as opposed to, you know, it could be that someone who knows what they're doing could be like, yeah, I want to learn these Meg Baird songs. I love them so much. Uh, there are certain artists, Dylan, Joni Mitchell, whoever, where the chords are so complicated for me. Sorry, I tend to sing songs to my daughter uh, in particular these days uh, at bedtime and I take a guitar and sometimes I'm like, I don't know how to play that. So I look it up. I'm like, I don't even know what the hell are they doing? I can't figure this out. What are they? What is this? And then inevitably and probably, you know, it's like Neil, I end up with Dylan and Neil Young or Silver Jews or just like just like relatively simple things that I can do as a novice. All I'm getting at is I too am like going for a feeling uh, in trying to, and I, and I, I, I like artists who are trying to present a feeling. So all this to say, does that resonate with you? Do you feel like you're trying to put forth a vibe and a feeling as much as you are? Look at me. I I know 50 friggin' chords or whatever. (laughs) I I don't even know if it's that plan. It's just that's my relationship with the instruments. Yes. And that's what I'm working from. And I could even change that. I could just say, like, you know what? I'm sick of this. I'm going to spend an hour a day with chord books and it's all going to be different. Now my relationship with the instrument is different. Uh, But that's, I don't know. That's, that's where I am with it. So fair enough. Yeah. Now I led us into uh, trying to provide a a overarching generalization about this batch of songs. (laughs) And uh, I, I wonder if you have a sense of that objectively now that the record's done. Like I, Forget what I said. Do you have a sense of what you're trying to convey uh, in an overarching sense with this record? I do, but since it is a record, it's hard to put into words. I know that sounds like a cop-out, but that's kind of how I, I try and make them. They're really dense with meaning that it's not an essay. If I were writing an essay, then that would be a totally different art form or so... I, sometimes I can be a little protective about, I'm always happy to go in depth about what did this mean and what were you thinking, but I don't, you know, I, maybe that's just fear or laziness or something to not want to kind of spell it out as, as an artistic statement, but I'm always a little hesitant to get too, too much. And because they're, they're really dead. I, really try and have them they're very collage collage dense like the images i'm pulling from the sources that are in them even the people that are in them that other music i'm trying to kind of honor or be inspired by it's never yeah there's there's always like a lot a lot going on <laughs> That's, no, that's in that department. So <laughs> it's fair. I wonder because I. It's funny you invoke it not being an essay because I do tend to uh, lean on lyric sheets a lot. Um, as a, I don't know if I lean on them. I appreciate them uh, generally, and I got yours a little bit late. It's in cursive, and uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> and I'm like, this is because there's the record has been floating in and out of my home 
uh, for some weeks and months now. And it, I really, it's one of these records where I'm like, I kind of get lost in the sound of it as, as opposed to the meaning. So I, I, I apologize if I am coming across a little lazy, but I, what I was getting to earlier is like, I mostly get a feeling here that I can't quite pinpoint myself. And I wonder if other listeners will have that same experience. Like it's a real mood setting record. I guess the only other way to kind of clarify my question without putting you on the spot is time and space. Like, do you, were these, a, was this a batch of songs that you wrote mostly at the same time? Like, are they reflective of a particular time period for yourself? Oh, yeah, very much. The, from, I mean, just from when the last record, last solo record was out to when I recorded it. So it picks up exactly where that one's done. And then this one, you know, and the next record will do, I'm sure, do the same. <laughs> so what time period, what and, time? And those are really long periods of time. That's, that's what I was get. That's what I was kind of leading towards. So yeah. what, what, what years did you, uh, what, what you, I guess that's 2015 to 2020. So right. five year. Right. Okay. So span. it wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, we we're collectively going through this thing, uh, this pandemic. And I, I think there are some records that, when I talk to people, they're like, "Yeah, yeah, I wrote this. I wrote this between 2020 and now, but it's not a pandemic record. Please don't pin that on me." But as yeah. a hunter, I'm like, "Well, wait a minute, though. I see the isolation here. I see the alienation. I see the longing. Surely, you know what's going on zeitgeist wise must be informing that song." And then invariably, people are like, "Yeah, I see what you mean, but I wasn't thinking that." That's kind of what I'm coming from because I know it's hard to kind of. Yes, you know, Meg, who insp- who or what might have inspired a song. Yeah. What I'm trying to look for is that kind of universal feeling. Like, did you? is there something here where you feel like we were all going through something socially, politically, culturally that, that, that comes up here for you that you tried to articulate and like process and articulate in songs? I think, yes, if that's, I think if I was looking at like these really broad, big picture things like that, um, I actually tracked the record right before the shutdown. I recorded it in twenty January, March twenty twenty. I see. So it was not in that time. You know, it happened right, but it, it's that feeling that collectively we're kind of looking out the horizon, wondering like something something is gathering. I don't know, and just that there's going to be so much grief to go through. So this is for that. Um, and I yeah. went through some personal grief. I lost my father. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I think, you know, kind of bridging the gaps between like personal and collective grief. Yeah. But this was before the last three years. I just, we got a lot going on <laughs> and have had. So that's... I think a big, in terms of just like zeitgeisty type, type of feelings and also consolation for that. Like I, I, the last piece was meant to be a consolation for losing everything, even language and your ability to use your mind, think. So yeah, I think the feeling of consolation was a big, big part of it. And also kind of being in a very long view long history kind of mindset 
was another piece of it too. Yeah. I, uh, I want to, again, uh, send my condolences to you or convey them to you, I suppose. Uh, Thank you very I'm so, much. I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, that's part of what prompted my initial question, like n- not knowing that context, of course, about your personal loss, but that it felt reflective of a life. And, and I think when you go through a loss like the one you've gone through, you can't help but ponder that relationship. Like this is your whole life. Like you wouldn't be here, right? So I feel like that's where I was coming from, um, and that's what I feel. That's the feeling. Again, I I, I can't pinpoint lyrics at this point for you, but uh, there's this just feeling of like stock taking and gratitude. And I think um, when I ask about the time and space and what we've all gone through, I pick up on that, but I didn't realize it was coming from such a deeply personal space. Because here it is, 2023. And you tracked this in three years ago. Um, so the other side of this uh, coin, th- this kind of coin <laughs> that I find with artists, uh, I've found with artists over the last couple of years is I'll say something like, well, this is, I'm reading this thing and this is clearly about what we're going through. They're like, no. But to be honest, I see what you're saying and it freaks me out how prescient I inadvertently was. I'm singing about something that has nothing to do with what you're talking about, but I see how it resonates. Objectively, do you pick, like you, you're clearly writing a, about grief and reflection and longing on, on on a whole other level, but do you see how it might come across as somewhat prescient, eerily relevant to what we're going through together? I can see that. And um, yeah. My friend Mary always tells me I'm psychic with I'm freakishly psychic with those things. <laughs> I don't I don't really put that much stock in any of that kind of stuff. But I I don't know. Sometimes my my records wind up having some of those elements. But maybe every everyone's everyone's work if they're kind of in touch in touch with that type of trying to, or at least trying to be in touch with those kinds of forces, I think that that usually winds up happening. I have expressed a theory on this show with other artists that I think artists are maybe more tapped into such feelings. They seem prescient, but really they're just tapped into something that no one has articulated fully yet. So you come across mm-hmm. as psychic, but maybe you're just dialed in in a way that other people aren't. Does that make sense? Yeah, kind of like when your cat... Wakes up before you an earthquake or something. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's exactly yeah. the analogy that we need right now. A cat waking up ahead of an earthquake. Yeah. Now, it's uh, all this to say, it's a really lovely record, and I'm sorry uh, for the circumstances um, that inspired some of it. Um, on, a, on the other hand, do you feel, I know when you, I was just talking about this with someone else, when you um, experience such a loss, you can grow to appreciate life more. It's unfair. It feels unfair and devastating, but you grow to appreciate either the person or, or thing you lost more. And then that can actually propel you as you go through life, like gratitude. Do you feel like that's in here as well? I'm sure it's in there. And along with just uh, cultivating, feeling more poetry, you know, just like in your life, not just as a, you know, it's just something you can cultivate. Yeah, and it's just can be personal. It doesn't have to be written down or shared or anything like that. But it's kind of state. But and again, there's so many, there's so many things in that record that, that would, you know, a lot of it's really joyful too. Yeah, and so much of it was done with Charlie, and about 
really positive things in our relationship and all of that too. There's just so, so much. And also just like my weird big thoughts about the world and history and all of that, that's, that's in there too. Uh, you know, I'm not an essayist or a historian or an academic that can address these things through those mediums. So I think I tackle them this way instead. And yeah, so that's, that's a lot, a lot of what's going on in there as well. Absolutely. And, and, uh, I appreciate you, uh, expressing this in this, in such a way, because I do think, uh, uh, spending time with the lyrics as I need to do more of, um, I think, uh, gives the, the record another dimension. I've read them, but I also, I like to read, sometimes I like to read along with the singer, like a bouncing ball thing. And I just like, <laughs> oh, it's, sometimes the lyrics hit me in a different way. So I'd encourage people to do that as well. In terms of the sound and the, you mentioned collaborators there. Is there anything you want to say about what other people brought to these songs? Uh, the people you worked with on this record? So, well, I, it was a small, small group it was it was charlie and me and charlie did some co-writing of this and he did a ton we basically just made our own band the two of us and there's very much like a lot of our world that we've cultivated is as part of what's in that record and then the other person would be tim green who did the recording um and of course he played a big part as well but it was fun just having the three of <laughs> the three of us. It's a really streamlined streamlined process. But yeah, Charlie, it, he's just um, did some co writing. You know, we just you know again like we just formed this. We formed a band together, even in overdub. But it was we were kind of working in a band format um, for for the record. And he's he was really good at you know pushing me to go further in that in that direction than sometimes I do when it's just me. I think I underestimate what I can do as a solo as a soloist. Yeah. And so and and so yeah, so that was that was it was it's always good to be pushed out of your comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and, and he was great at doing that. That's lovely. Uh, have you been able to play live much and potentially bring some of these songs to the stage yet? Yes, I, I got to do a really great kind of trial run. Not really a trial run. I mean, it was there were great shows. But um, I teamed up with Chris Forsyth, mm-hmm. and we shared a band of Ryan Jewell and Douglas McCombs and Charlie as well. So that's the first time I've... I mean, I've played in bands many, many, many times, but that's the first time I've ever kind of gone in that traditional band format and we're going to do it again in March on the oh. West Coast. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, Douglas McCombs was on this show and uh, and Doug mentioned that he really enjoyed playing with you. It was a big thrill. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> we, it's it's nice to hear that we might, that might happen again. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Probably as many times as we can make it work, but at least I, it's going to happen at least one more time. <laughs> Was that, your, was that your first sort of pandemic era run of shows? I have been playing, uh, but they've kind of tended to be special shows, one or two shows, um, outdoor shows in California. Yeah. That, but that was the first, you know, tour of club dates that I had, that I've done. Um, what, what was that like experientially for you as a seasoned performer <laughs> to be doing it in this weird context? You know, it's different. 
Uh, I think we were lucky. We went. We were out at a at a pretty good time. So that that was, you know, that was helpful. Uh, but it was, you know, it's different in terms of cases and stuff. COVID, yeah, yeah, yeah cases yeah. were. Yeah. Um, there was a recent booster. Oh, I see. Right, cases were low. I there was just kind of it wasn't winter yet, and yeah. th- we didn't have that kind of holiday time spike that has seems to happen now, like clockwork. Um, all of that. So yeah, we were a little bit lucky in that way that things felt a little bit like lower danger. Um, one of the things, I don't know, you just, it's hard not to worry about people, the people that feel um, shut out yeah. from seeing live music. That's really painful. The accessibility aspect of, of this. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's a real drag. I mean, some of that could be mitigated by the mask wearing that no one wants to do or enforce. Uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't, I, I, Swore my New Year's resolution was I wasn't going to be so heavy about the <laughs> pandemic uh, with my guests, but I, uh, I just I don't. The only question I would ask you because I've been proposing this to people as an idea, but do you see music performance potentially moving to kind of a late spring, summer, early fall uh, time frame somehow? Because it does seem to me that you just described it that kind of. October, November, December to March roughly seems to be when things go up because of the various strains of illness that are intermingling and then creating these harder iterations of of virus. Some of these viruses we've lived with our whole lives and been like, yeah, I got a thing. It's over now. But now they don't happen. Anyway, does that occur to you? Like maybe I'll just ask to be booked in times where it's going to be better. Uh, at least mm-hmm. we have a better chance. Has that occurred to you? It has a bit. I mean, and you already think that way in terms of weather and yeah. attendance and, and all of that. I, I don't I don't know that most people will have that luxury. Yeah. And also you don't want to, the venues to suffer because yeah. how are they, you know, they, they can't function just as seasonal venues. I, I really do. I just don't yeah. think anyone totally, totally knows and just everyone's, you know, can just hope that everyone's kind of doing their best. <laughs> yeah. Meg, uh, so. we're, we're not doctors. We're not going to solve this problem ourselves. <laughs> I just uh, yeah. wanted your opinion because you're out there. You're actually yeah, like a frontline. It's, it's different, yeah. but it's, you know, you appreciate things more too. That's if there, if I'm going to find a, something positive to say about it is before this happened, a lot of times people seemed really fried and kind of checked out and ungrateful and, like, oh, here I am here again. Yes, that's blah, blah, true. Blah, it's blah, more blah. special. Yeah. It's a lot more special and people are a lot more engaged. And that's good. I guess we can just hope for the best that everyone will, things will get easy enough that everyone can get really bored and over it and checked out again. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. hopefully not. I but hope. it's that, that was a big difference is I think the, the engagement and just like not being kind of fried and over it the way yeah. that kind of can happen yeah well i wish you the best of luck on the road for those dates in march uh, you alluded to the fact that uh you may have already started the process of potentially a new new record um can you talk a little bit about where you're at with um songs and if there's anything else beyond the tour dates which i can link to and whatnot uh are there any other future plans you want to tell us about at this point well just i'll be hopefully playing as many shows as i can and 
I think I'd really like to catch up on a lot of collaboration, like overdue collaborations. I, I'm hoping to to fill my, you know, my work time with a lot of that, like get, uh, working with Mary again, working with my sister again. I don't all kinds of all kinds of ideas percolating that I hope <laughs> to to you know get off of a wish list and into reality. <laughs> <laughs> this is Mary Latimer. Is that who you're yes. referring to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Just yeah. making sure. Okay. Yeah, we're hoping to do another, another, another duo record. Nice, lovely. That's great. Uh, if people want to learn more about you specifically, um, beyond going to Drag City's website and Drag City stuff, um, is there anywhere you'd like to direct them uh, on the internet? I mean, I just have a very simple website just to help so you don't have to look around at a bunch of creepy websites for shows and all of that. So I'm keeping that updated. If you like a cleaner, cleaner signal to yes. shows and, and all of that, a dear friend helped me set that up so I can avoid the, uh, the like song kick, you know, like assault of ads yeah. and all of that. So. So that's is, out there. Is that megbear.com? Yes. Yes, it is. And what about mm-hmm. like the things that everyone is leaving, the social media stuff? Are you on any of those things? Oh, I, I have them. Yes. Is it okay? When is it okay to leave them? I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I've been I, waiting. I, I've been waiting. I, I don't know. The- I keep seeing it. It felt like we were all going to leave Twitter and then. Uh, now it doesn't seem that way anymore. I don't know what's going on. I can't tell you. I can't tell I, you the right answer to this. I stay engaged because of, I mean, I don't, I know the promoters have so much work to do, so yeah. I don't, I don't want to um, make it difficult for them. But if, yeah, if it becomes like, if there's another way, let me know. That's but true. yes, I have, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm on all of uh, the, you know, Twitter. <laughs> I don't, um, I don't know if you saw, uh, are you? Instagram, yeah. Megling, Megling Baird at Instagram, it's. I have a Facebook page. It's kind of like a like a terrarium that I started in 2007 that's like half dead. It's still kind of alive. I don't know. Yeah, you're not alone in these uh, thoughts and feelings, Meg. I'll tell you that. As we're speaking, Corey Hansen, a uh, fellow Drag City artist, oh, yeah, had an amazing cool. tweet about how he doesn't like the internet. He doesn't like any of the stuff, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I only use this to promote my records. Thanks. That's that's what his tweet said. It's the funniest. I retweeted it because I thought it was very funny. I'll probably get in trouble for it somehow. But I thought uh, I thought it was very funny, and I feel like everyone's just sick of everything. But we're doing our best. So uh, all this to say, I'm not saying you're saying that, but I appreciate your sentiments. Uh, it, you're very. It's very noble of you to take the burden off uh, all the people uh, invested in you coming to their clubs or uh, right. You know, putting out your records. Uh, that's that's frankly. It's very kind of you, Meg. Thank you. <laughs> Just, well, it's kind of them to put my shows on. Yes. And all the work that they do. So um, at this point, yeah, I, I try and stay engaged for the sake of, of them and, and, you know, yeah. see my friends' uh, pets and adorable toddlers and all that. <laughs> yeah, there's that <laughs> so, stuff too. That keeps, not- me, keeps me hooked. Okay. There's some nicer things too. Meg, if we can go out on a song uh, from Furling right now for people to hear, uh, can you choose one for us and also uh, talk a little bit about why it came to mind? Let's see. I think I'll think of um, Ashes, Ashes. Ah, the opening track. Opening track. 
I don't know. I went there. I think it was just because you talked about the the, the kind of the prescience and the zeitgeist kind of thing, like that looking out over the horizon thing yeah. and seeing the swirling crowds. That song was very much from that. Is it not primarily, if memory serves, primarily an instrumental, though? Yes, but I'm still, you know. Yeah. No, no, I'm not second-guessing your choice. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you're, like, deriving meaning from what we were talking about and having Mm -hmm. an instrumental be the most applicable song. I think that's fascinating in itself. Yeah, well, that's that's what that's, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't it's mean like to... my. It's like it's not an instrumental on my brain. No, <laughs> no. I guess I don't know. No, fair enough. I, I just mean it doesn't have. Uh, yeah, that's all. I was just. Getting, I think it's lovely. It's haunting. It's like a. Anyway, I don't want to say much more about it. Why don't we just play it for people and let them decide what's going on? All right. So okay. Here, thank you very much. Here it is. Uh, this is Ashes Ashes from the beautiful new record Furling by Meg Baird, which is available on Drag City Records. Uh, Meg, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, our conversation. I did very much. It's a pleasure to get to interact with you. Uh, I'm a fan. So thank you for this time, and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Oh, thank you so much. Really awesome to be able to talk to you. <laughs>
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Oh, very special thanks to uh, Meg Baird for making time for me and uh, for appearing on this, the 748th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One podcast network and is available just about wherever you get your podcasts if you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you've been looking for it and you don't know where, where it is or if you want to learn more about me sign up for my monthly newsletter please visit vishkana.com you can also like creative control on facebook or follow the show on twitter at vish creative or you can follow me directly both on twitter and on instagram at vishkana also, please visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to uh, help fund all of the work that goes into making this podcast. $6 American or more a month grants you access to exclusive content, including uh, getting the uh, new episodes early and also access to my archive of interviews uh, that I'm slowly but surely uh, releasing into the Patreon. These are things that I... If you don't know me very well, I've been a print journalist and an audio broadcaster for uh, a long time, and I have a lot of stuff that uh, I have in my archives that uh, predates this podcast, and sometimes I find it and I put it up on the Patreon as a little bonus, and uh, people seem to like that. So yeah, that's, uh, I mean, other than that, you're just supporting the show and all the work that goes into it, so thank you for considering even donating anything and again it doesn't have to be six dollars a month it could be any amount you could be two dollars a month three dollars a month ten dollars a month twenty dollars a month and you can change the amount at any time or cancel the donation at any time it's very flexible so please consider doing that at patreon.com slash creative control and if you'd uh, have any interest in a creative control t-shirt at that six dollar or more a month range just send me a note on patreon and i'll get you one just as soon as i possibly can Thanks again to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their respective in-kind support for this show. Thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for letting me use some music of his on the program. You can learn more about uh, Jim at jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Meg Barrett. I hope you'll check out her new album, Furling, and all her work. She's, uh, She's a wonder. It was really nice to spend some time with her. And other than that, I hope you will subscribe to this podcast or follow it and also tell your friends out there about it and maybe they'll do the same things and help spread the word about this show. And other than that, I hope you're well and I will talk to you very soon. Take care of yourselves. Bye for now.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.